This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Thank you, Eva. Oh, that's very loud. Um, I, can, I can whisper. Um, welcome back after lunch, and we've got the privilege to bring the energy back into the discussion uh, for this afternoon. Um, this panel is going to focus on workers, worker choice, worker voice, and what does the advancement of technology mean for workers? Um, there's loads of opportunities that we can find for workers, but also loads of challenges. We are seeing erosion of rights. We are seeing diffusion and disconnect between individual workers as they become managed by uh, algorithms. And it makes it hard to access your rights, to advocate and to enforce them. And to talk about these challenges, but also touch on opportunities, we have got a great panel of four speakers. Um, I'll ask them each to introduce themselves first before we launch into discussion. And I will start from Kate Dearden. Thank you so much. Can you hear me? Um, thank you so much. Really great to be here. I'm Kate Dearden from Community Trade Union and we're a union representing workers in sectors all across the UK economy, from steel workers, prison officers, teachers, tanker drivers, um, and the way they work in, in a range of ways, from employees, the self-employed and freelance workers, to everything in between. Uh, so a real diverse union, sort of representing those workers all across the economy and, and dealing with numerous challenges they face. Uh, so really looking forward to this discussion. Welcome, Kate. Um, and over to Hannah Slaughter from Resolution Foundation. Hi, um, my name is Hannah Sutter. I work at the Resolution Foundation um, and my work covers lots of different aspects of the labour market, but in particular with a focus on uh, low paid workers, working conditions, enforcement of rights and also kind of worker power and the, the way that that shapes um, people's jobs and their working lives. And on the other side, we have got Emma Back. Hello, everyone. Pleasure to be here. Um, I founded Equal Care Co-op five years ago. We are a platform co-op, which is a rare breed of entity, but one which I hope will eventually take over the world. Um, there are lots of us all over the globe. Uh, essentially, that means that we're building a digital product to enable caregiving um, and to promote both worker choice and power, but also the person who's on the receiving end and family members as well. Um, we work to a model of care that where power and choice is kind of built into the DNA. So it's not just about being a co-op. Um, people receiving support build their own team. They choose their workers. The workers choose them. It's a kind of negotiated consent on both sides. And everything that we do is to facilitate and enable that and to help that caregiving relationship be the best it can be. Um, we then organize into circles locally, so we sort of work to a more decentralized model um, where workers are then able to recruit new workers um, to bring on new people who are looking for support. And so to sort of start to open up the way the organization works to, to not have that kind of very, that, that triangle um, that, that is the default for 
sort of every organization um, everywhere in many ways. Welcome. And then um, we've got Jagar Kakalt from the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. Good afternoon. Thank you very much for having me. I'm Jigar Kakad. I'm Director of Government Innovation for the Tony Blair Institute. We're a political consultancy operating in 35 countries across the world. Um, my job is to think about how the state needs to uh, adapt for the challenges of the 21st century, in particular, how technology is changing the relationship between citizens, governments, and businesses. And right at the heart of that is how technology is reshaping the future of work. Um, to that end, we've done some work on classifying and quantifying atypical work here in the UK, UK including the gig economy, but also looking uh, across uh, different markets and how gig economy and gig workers feel in London, Singapore, Nairobi, and uh, Jakarta. Thank you. Um so to set the scene for the discussion this afternoon, I'll ask Hannah to give us a bit of a background into the current labor market situation and in particular in the context of enforcement. Thanks, Cara. Um, yeah, so as I said at the beginning, um, a lot of my work um, focuses on kind of broader issues of, of job quality, worker power, and, and kind of at the very sharp end, how that kind of translates into um, breaches of workers' rights. So just to give a bit of a sense of the, um, the problem. So from a purely financial perspective, we know that wages are lower than they could be otherwise because employers have power over their workers. Um, academics have estimated that wages could be about £100 a week higher if employers didn't have that power over workers um, on average. So that is kind of a big financial kind of consequence of what we're seeing um, from the imbalance of power. We're also seeing um, kind of a, a pr um, quite prolific um, uh, space of poor quality work. We know that after the financial crisis in particular, there were there was a big rise in insecure contracts, um, things like zero hours contracts, temporary contracts, and that hasn't gone away even as kind of the jobs market has has recovered after that recession. Um, and then at the very kind of most acute end, we see workers not getting the rights that they're owed in law. Um, so we estimate that around. Um, 350,000 people are being underpaid the minimum wage, about 900,000 people say they don't get any paid holiday entitlement, and about 1.8 million people say they don't get a pay slip so they can't actually check that they're getting the, the right pay and the right um, the, the things that they're entitled to. So this is kind of a big, a big problem. It's also unequal. It probably won't be that surprising to people in this room that it's um, particularly low paid workers um, who are um, bearing the brunt of these poor working conditions. Um, and also um, other marginalized groups, such as uh, people from migrant backgrounds, people from ethnic minority backgrounds. Um, these, these are kind of um, particularly a key for some groups of workers. So there's kind of a, um, a big problem there. Um, kind of more um, kind of about kind of what's what's going on underneath that, like wh when workers face problems, what, what's kind of happening. Um, it's, it's really difficult, like the way that the labor market institutions are set up for workers to actually assert their rights and argue for better um better practice um you know aside from kind of the the well-known decline of kind of formal collective bargaining in the form of unions um it's also just become kind of harder for workers to leave their job you know it, lots of workers if they're getting treated badly they're you know their natural response would be to to kind of leave a job um but if there's 
either you don't know what options are out there or if there are no good options out there for you um or if all the jobs that are out there are equally as bad then that's just not really an option for you so that's kind of making life really difficult the the kind of state systems that are set up to enforce workers rights are are weak and patchy and kind of underfunded um and, and so that's kind of um, a big problem and then workers um, often struggle to enforce their own rights through an employment tribunal because it's costly it's really stressful it's you need to know what you're doing um and so there's kind of a big gap and and i suppose you know, it's, it's there's obviously um, a role here for the government and for policy, and that's what I spend a lot of my time thinking about in my kind of uh, day job. And you know, there's certainly um, a role for the government in strengthening the rights themselves, strengthening enforcement of those rights, um, helping to strengthen labour market institutions, be that trade unions, or we propose setting up new kind of sectoral institutions to to get the sector to agree on better. Uh, conditions in sectors um, like social care, like cleaning and like warehousing. Um, but there are also kind of areas where either policy isn't moving quickly enough or where, um, you know, policy, national policy might not kind of be best placed to, to, to kind of help workers, you know, know, know their rights, know what's out there and kind of improve their power in the workplace, which I suspect we'll get onto discussing today. So I think that's probably enough for me. There's a lot in there. Thank you, um, Hannah. Um, I think the, the impact, the financial impact of the lack of power that you set out at the beginning is, is, is quite significant. And I think that's something to really illustrate what it means in financial terms for low-paid workers not to have power. Now, you talked a lot about what needs to change in policy and some of the barriers. Um, but let's talk about what the employers can do. Um, Maybe I can start with Kate. What, what what can employers do to shift or contribute to shifting the balance of power and give more powers to low-paid workers? Thank you very much. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm speaking from a trade union, and I think uh, recognising trade unions and the absolutely incredible work trade unions have done across sectors and working in good partnership with employers has transformed workplaces across the country and sectors. Um, at Community, we like to work in partnership with employers for that purpose. When a business does well, ultimately our members do well. Um, and that's the achievements that we've managed to uh, work with employers on, whether it's driving up better pay, introducing transformative policies in the workplace, whether it's around menopause, on mental health, um, on a range of issues that are really transforming the day-to-day -day lives of our members, but also the wider society and communities that they operate in. Um, because, you know, we really feel like trade unionism isn't just confined to the workplace. It's really important for our society and communities too. So obviously, I think the trade union movement is absolutely vital um, in answering that question. Um, and I think for low-paid workers in particular, and you touched on all the challenges that we are operating in, I think that context is is really important. Um, and how we look at the world of work and today, people are, are much more likely to move sectors, careers, and combine those different approaches to work um, more than what trade unions were used to. We were um, formed 100 years ago and how different the union is now and the sectors that we make up has really made us think about how we represent our membership and the different approaches we have to take because we are seeing so many workers who are now in those non-traditional roles. So from freelancers and subcontractors to agency and gig workers, and we have seen a lot more low paid work on that side of things. So I think that broader picture outside of the union, not just employers, but um, reflecting that context that we're operating in and that challenge that the nature of work has called into our system a question the system of workers' rights that you mentioned, um, that has fallen far behind that blended labour market that we see today and that we see in our membership. Um, 
workers do are taking on sort of those greater risks with less security and protection in exchange for perhaps more flexibility at work. And that raises a whole load of questions around government policy, but also what employers can do better. But they aren't employers sometimes that we've worked with in the past. They're on platforms and, you know, there's different relationships there and different ways to navigate it. So I think that raises a whole load of questions around who their employer is. Is there an employer sometimes for these low-paid workers? How do we then navigate that bargaining system? And how do unions respond, adapt and reflect on that um, to make sure that we represent the needs of, of the modern work of, worker of today? Emma, um, you described a very different model of working um, and uh, what I would almost describe as, as, as a sort of the self-management teal concept of organization. Um, but that's not something that's not what we are talking about uh, today. But what would your suggestion be in terms of what employers can do differently in order to enable more power? to be in the hands of workers using your experience and the model that you have set up with your organizations? Feedback. Um, I would expand the term employers just in recognition of, of, what, of what you've said and thinking about platforms, um, agencies, kind of any organization that it is essentially a provider of work. Um, or a, 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 an enabler of labor to kind of occur. Um, and to say that any entity that is doing that has a moral obligation to both its customers and to its workers, regardless of whether they are employed, workers, self-employed, whatever other category kind of people want to fit into or are designated. So that's kind of the ground that you have a responsibility if that's the work that you're in that's work you're doing um uh, the second kind of key component is uh consent so whenever you get a job <laughs> there is this sort of tacit kind of right i've signed the employment contract i'm working for this this employer um, and for the duration of me working that's me working in consent regardless of kind of how they treat you or sort of the levels of exploitation that you might experience the employer is working off that initial day that you came into the office and signed the contract um, and then you know then all bets are off um, certainly in social care and the other low-paid sectors that we're talking about here um, so if you look at consent as something that is not day one, and then you can forget about it, but look at it as a concept that is a daily sort of micro interaction kind of thing, um, then you can start to build organizations that are much more collaborative and don't need to take that kind of combative employer versus employee, worker versus provider, you know, gig worker versus platform. And to say, well, we're all building something here. Obviously, cooperatives are a really great format for that, but <laughs> they're not the only one. Um, and, uh, and then that also goes for your employment basis. It goes for what you do on a daily basis. It goes for who you work with. And actually, the more that you're able, and this is also where technology can help, to personalize an experience in a job, um, I mean, we, we say to people that they can be employed, they can come on self-employed, and there are obviously different implications around that. Um, we ran a bread fund over COVID just to kind of pick up on the, on the safety net um, aspect of self-employment as well, but there's still more to do there. 
Um, and in, in terms of the agreement that you're making with somebody when they start work with you, um, if, if you're saying things like, if you want to whistleblow, your position will be protected. If you want to raise a grievance or an issue, your position will be protected. Um, and actually, employment is not usually a protecting factor for that, regardless of what the legislation says. But if employers, if providers of work, if agencies are able to make those conscious commitments to say, regardless of how you work with us, you will still access these rights. Um, and we, we renew the agreement that we have with you on a daily basis, not just at the beginning of your engagement with us. Um, those could be some, some great steps. <laughs> Thank you, Emma. And Jagar, um, you talked about the work that, that your organization has done specifically around the non-standard types of employment. Um, can you explain a bit more about what that actually means for worker power, but also how can we offer more choice to workers and sort of shift that unbalance of power? Yes, uh, definitely. So we um, used a new survey in the UK called uh, Understanding Society, or it's an old longstanding survey of 40,000 households, but they had a new wave of data that uh, allowed us to understand um, a kind of full spectrum of atypical work, everything from your kind of traditional self-employed kind of consultants to uh, gig workers and other agency workers where there's a third party intermediating their access to work to those that have kind of um, more zero hours contracts. And what we found through this is um, basically, as I said, there are three categories of atypical workers. Um, what we call uh, hustlers, the traditional self-employed, the giggers, your gig workers, and the impermanents, the people that are very, very precarious in the relationship with work. Um, the first thing to pull out is that um, only about 2% of all people in work over the age of 16 are gig workers, which stands in stark contrast to some of the bigger estimates out there by uh, TUC and others. Um, and I think Res Foundation has found similar levels of gig working. Um, so I think just one to put into context some of the work we're talking about. Um, in terms of the experience of work while they're in work, um, uh, we, we like to say that atypical work is about flexibility, it's about having choice, et cetera. But what we found, it was only really the traditional self-employed that are typically older uh, workers in a second or third phase of their career that had genuine control over their hours. Um, when it came to gig workers, agency workers, or um, those are slightly more kind of on zero hours contracts, they had the same agency over their hours as traditional employees. Um, despite all the rhetoric around flexibility, they had less, they had the same amount of control. The problem we found was that they tended to be paid by the hour or by the task, which made their attachment to work far more precarious. Um, and, and that became a problem. They also had different forms of training from their employer or their uh, um, the person providing them with work. I think, but it's a good distinction. It's a really important distinction that Emma made. We can't we can't just talk about employers because it has a certain context. Um, uh, the other thing we found though that a lot of this work was was traditionally temporary. 
Um, and uh, for example, um, uh, gig workers, 43% of them that were gig workers in 2016 were in traditional employment by 2019. So there's a lot of movement between different types of workers. Um, in addition, the last thing I'll say, and then I'll, I'll come on to what our recommendations were about how do you give them choice and control. Um, when we did our work across four different cities, Jakarta, London, Singapore, Nairobi, um, what we found is that workers' sense of control can be undermined uh, by a lack of clarity on how decisions are made around their work, around their hours, or around their pay, um, and their inability to react to influence or control uh, the way in which decisions are made really undermines their, their attachment to work. Um, and I mean, that's not surprising. I think it was actually quite um, satisfying or kind of like across the world, just despite different types of labor markets, different types of economies, workers pretty much had the same concerns and the same desires from work. Um, where we've landed is on um, how, do you, how, how do you support workers and worker voice is what we call a minimum set of worker rights across um, digital rights, uh, including transparency over day, transparency over data, uh, portability over data and, and pay, um, minimum set of rights around pay, including access to um, uh, the right to request sick pay, parental leave, even access to pension payments, um, minimum uh, uh, access to self-employed being represented in uh, bargaining units, and I think while we've been here, the Supreme Court has determined that um, delivered crew drivers cannot be represented by a trade union for collective bargaining rights. Um, if you allow the self-employed to form parts of bargaining units, that would solve that problem and give them a right and a, and a voice. Um, and the last thing is, is right to access um, uh, kind of different different things around health, safety, and well-being, especially for um, people working from home. I think just really specifically on choice, it comes back to data and transparency. Um, the more that platforms in particular can be transparent about um, the, the pay people are getting, paid workers are getting, drivers are getting, um, and the more uh, that, that data is portable and comparable across platforms, and I think there's a great um, uh, company here, Rodeo, that's trying to do some of this, um, the more choice and power the individual uh, worker, the individual have, um, because that puts them in the driving seat, and you you, you can get to a position where platforms um, aren't using uh, you know the opaqueness to kind of drive down wages. Is actually visibility over the different types of wages you can earn at that given point. Platforms might have to start to compete, and I think that's where you get. Uh, worker power and worker choice is through that transparency of data. Great. So we're moving into the discussion around, well, how can technology be an opportunity to enhance worker power? And your example around transparency around data and actually giving workers the data that they otherwise would have in a different type of um, employment relationship. Um, is, is one of the examples. So what else can we use technology for? What opportunities are there? Either of you. Thank you. Uh, there's so much to cover. So we will get cracking on, uh, particularly on tech, and I can speak to a bit about what we've done at Community um, internally with our members and our reps in terms of 
giving them the tools they need to sort of bargain around technology. So coming back to that earlier point I mentioned around the role of, of trade unions in this conversation. Um, but just take a step back on what we've spoken about in terms of that playoff and um, the, the risks that workers are taking when it comes to security and flexibility and, and how we sort of overhaul um, our system of, of workers' rights here. I think for, for us as a union, um, what's really important in ending that trade-off and instead delivering on a vision that makes new forms of work work for everyone, but in a meaningful, fair and decent way is really important. And part of that is rather than inhibiting innovation, we actually make innovation work for everybody in all these different forms and ways of working that we've spoken about. Um, and when it comes to technology, actually understanding who the technology is serving and thinking about that before we even approach what legislation, for example, we would want to see um, to make sure we can secure that better work and, and better experiences of work. Um, so for unions, I guess, making the most of technological opportunities, I would break it into, into two parts. Um, workers themselves using it in order to have a better time at work, but also how unions are using it. And we've been um, sort of seeing those ways in which new technology can make jobs better. So that more positive side um, to the story and more efficient and flexible if it's deployed in the right way and that less demanding physical work. And we know that if technology leads to greater productivity and profitability, that does mean more money in our members' pockets. Um, so for us, it's how we then manage those tech changes at work correctly. So we have the opportunity to create positive change for workers. And a lot of our members are, are positive about the opportunities, but they're concerned that they are not being consulted when technology technological changes are introduced in the workplace. Um, so there could be a positive story to tell here when we're in sort of relation to um, employers and, and partners that we work with and, and around technology in the workplace, sort of moving towards those shorter hours to the same pay or better work environments and safer workplaces. Um, but it's a huge question around that existing regulation that protects workers from those risks posed by the use of AI um, and algorithms or encourages the development of systems um, that's actually support human dignity and making sure that yes, workers do feel positive about, about this, uh, which I think the earlier panel touched on slightly too. Um, so we have done a bit of work around sort of training with our members and with our reps and a lot of other unions across the space and the, and the TUC too have been doing some work around how unions can change our systems to, to sort of bring our members and reps with us. Um, but we also want to see technology change sort of brought firmly into the scope of collective bargaining. Um, and recognise as an area in which work consultation is legally required. Um, at the moment, the TUC and lots of other unions are working through a bill of how we are, can actually make that happen and, and sort of bring it into reality. It looks like we won't get that from the government in a form of an employment bill um, in this parliament, which is obviously a huge missed opportunity. Um, but it's still really important that we start on that work and, and make sure we can shape what it looks like in the workplace. Um, and also with the Institute of Future of Work, which I think Anna is in the audience. Um, <laughs> you are. Yeah, we've been doing some work on sort of more practical things for our members to get stuck into in the meantime. Um, so actually how we can create those tech champions in the workplace and bargain around technology. Uh, so we sort of developed a four stage process for workers um, with the Institute to follow when consulting. So it's sort of identifying that technology um, that may have a significant impact on work and assessing the risks and impacts that technology might have to engage in, in dialogue and, and meaningful consultation, um, which obviously isn't new to, to our reps or to trade unions, agreeing an action plan and sort of having that useful framework to aid and understanding and ensuring the aspects of what we currently have in terms of existing law and good practice are 
adequately captured, um, but ensuring that consultation is genuinely meaningful. And I think that's that's really important for us as part of this conversation of how we use technology and for unions themselves, um, that we are making the most of, of those opportunities. Um, and TUC colleagues is in the room um, that Andrew referred to earlier. I won't make you put your hand up again. <laughs> but there's loads of uh, good work that has been done by unions to make sure we are doing that. So I would take it sort of that two-pronged approach from the workers themselves to actually unions and how we're responding. Thank you, Kate. Um, Anna, yeah. uh, the majority of technology in the caregiving space is B2B. So it's sold into home care organizations, which means that the user requirements are led by the management and the owners. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> so when we started designing, um, we ask the question of each feature, is there a legal reason for us to not be able to do this thing that is usually in the province of the manager? So managers can assign shifts, managers can determine pay, managers can choose where you go over the course of the day. Is it illegal to allow the worker to be in control of that? No. So. What, why is someone else doing it? Um, and actually, if you kind of look at the features that are built into technologies and particularly permission structures that are built into technologies, um, which again are led by business owners, management, people who require oversight, people who need to chase people to do stuff that they're not doing or are doing, or people who need to surveil others in some way, shape or form, um, then, you can start to, uh, I guess, unwind the systems of power that have been ratcheted in to the majority of the technology products that we use in our lives or which we are subject to. Um, the NHS is a rich and enduring basket of examples. <laughs> so as long as co-design is also working well with ownership and doesn't just fall back into consultation. As long as you're thinking about who can do what, who can see what, who can change what in this technology thing that is being built, who can define an entity, who can define a relationship, then that, I believe, is the key to beginning to unlock the sorts of power mechanisms that after all technology is only there to reproduce in the existing structures that we already have the vast majority of the time. I'm gonna stop there. <laughs> um, thank you, that, that was a great analysis of uh, how technology is just effectively a mirror of the hierarchical structures of, of an organization that were built a very long time ago that we still seem to subscribe to despite all of these innovations and new ways of working and talk about new ways of working actually we work in the in the old way through technology um hannah um yeah just to um, we echo lots of what's already been said i mean i think that in terms of how tech can kind of help worker power there are kind of two 
sides of it and one is on the collective side which Kate has already covered a lot of and I think that that you know the ways that help uh, that tech can help um, workers kind of organize and uh, kind of um, carry out collective bargaining is is all the more important when workplaces are becoming uh, less and less the kind of quote unquote traditional kind of everyone in one place the same hours in a day when people have different shifts and they're not always crossing paths it's harder to kind of um, you know come together collectively and bargain collectively with an employer in that way. So I think tech can be really useful there. And then the other side, which um, Jigal's already touched on, is the kind of knowing, telling workers what their options are. So whether it's kind of knowing that their, you know, their pay is not as good as the employer down the road. So maybe they need to start asking for a pay rise or thinking about looking elsewhere, whether it's kind of just being aware of like what other options are out there that gives them kind of more power in the workplace and, and, and kind of not just, you know, that what options kind of in terms of like the number of jobs that are out there but also like knowing that actually there are these jobs that fit my personal circumstances whether it's someone who has caring responsibilities um you know we, we've heard a lot in in focus groups that we've done that people with you know people who need certain types of flexible working to fit around childcare, for example or uh, working um kind of trying to manage a health condition alongside work um, are often really worried about not being able to find a, another job that kind of suits their preferences. So being able to show workers what's out there is really, um, really important. Um, I, and that can kind of um, have um, important consequences for, for kind of um, people's um, work and, and, you know, whether they're, they're getting a good deal in the workplace. And then I think um, we've, we kind of had a panel earlier about skills and I think, you know, more visibility around what skills people what skills employers are looking for um and helping um put workers in touch with the kind of training opportunities is also kind of um a really important role of tech but i won't kind of go into that because lots of people will have been here for for the morning um session but yeah i think there's kind of lots of opportunities out there it's just kind of making sure that they are um the the right kinds of tech and not the kind of surveillance tech that people are so worried about Loads of to unpack there, talked about structures of organizations, the role of data, impact on labor rights, uh, how do we ensure collective bargaining in the new context? Um, are there any questions from the audience before I ask any more questions that we have pre-prepared? Or is everybody very quiet and digesting um, all of the information after lunch? Um, I think there is a question over there. And, and um, you can introduce yourself and, and say whether you, your question is for a particular member of the panel or for everybody. Uh, yes, my name is Nushin. Yeah, uh, it's been suggested that um, self-employed earn less than the employed. Um, so how could we, because we have a big population of self-employed people, how could we make sure that self-employed are, are earned as much as the employed people? <clears throat> uh, on, on balance, the people who are self-employed with us earn about the same or more in many cases. Um, so I'm probably not the best person to ask this question because that's not the, it, like, it doesn't have to be that way, basically. Um, but it's very, it's more dependent on this kind of the steadier flow of work. Um, and that again is one of the responsibilities of the employment provider, work provider. 
Um, yeah. Uh, thank you for the question. Um, we have a lot of members who are obviously self-employed in the union. They are on the lower paired sort of side of the spectrum. Um, I guess that's just sort of the nature of them joining a union. So it's kind of a, a unique selection of, of self-employed workers. Um, and I think there are some yeah, anomalies in terms of self-employed. Again, I'm not sure the full statistics will have to look it up. In some sectors, that's the case. But on the whole, I don't think that's sort of for every single sector that the diverse self-employed community work in. Um, but from just conversations and experiences from our membership, um, I guess what frustrates them quite often is the fact that they just have to accept a job sometimes. They can't go back and sort of bargain over the different rates because it's very easy for clients or whoever they're working with to go find um, another freelancer or self-employed worker that might be starting out and sort of looking to build up their experience and might offer to accept a job for, for a lower rate. Um, and that is obviously quite challenging when you are sort of competing in that environment. And I think for, for us, obviously, that transparency is quite key. Um, you know, what is the rate in certain sectors that people can, I guess, in a way, bargain around? Obviously, they don't have collective bargaining rights at the moment. Um, and it sort of then opens the, um, the door to what the gender pay gap might be in self-employment. There's very little information around that. Um, so I think we have to have that further information and insight as to actually what's going on in in pay across the different sectors that the very diverse self-employed um, workforce operate in. But in addition to that, action around late payments, loads of our members don't get paid on time. Um, we as a union try and help chase those payments um, to get that money back into their pockets. That obviously impacts massively if you are lower paid and you're waiting uh, for that paycheck to come in whilst you're still trying to get uh, sort of jobs and, and more work. But then on top of that, there's not that safety net that obviously employees are entitled to around sick pay. Um, in particular, which was sort of top priority for our members and was exacerbated during the pandemic when actually they realised if they don't have any work and they don't have any money and they can't pay their bills. Um, so for us at Community, that's a, a real priority for our self-employed and freelance membership, providing that safety net. Um, so, you know, when times do get tough, they do have something to rely on. It should be, for us, a basic, no matter what employment status you operate in. Um, so I guess there's, yeah, a number of those things. It's that power to to really bargain for that higher rate. Uh, the transparency, but securing that safety net and and good quality work, good quality self-employment, no matter what your status might be, you should have that good quality um, work. So there's yeah, a range of stuff, I think, that creates that, that issue for some for some workers in, in the self-employed and freelance section of the economy. <laughs> yeah, um, and I think in our, uh, I'll echo a lot of what Kate just said and, and what I said earlier, and a lot of our recommendations around a minimum set of worker rights a lot of the, that would apply regardless of employment status and uh, if you're just engaged in work, but a lot of the benefits for the self-employed. So, for example, ensuring minimum wage, national living wage applies to the self-employed, which it doesn't. Um, that might be complicated to actually do in practice, but we think it's a principle that should be pursued. Um, as I said earlier, ensuring the self-employed can form part of bargaining units so they can have collective bargaining uh, where it, they, seem, they, 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 they think it's necessary. Um, also, the, the access to data I said earlier would, I think, empower self-employed workers um, and put, give them more, uh, put them more in the driving seat rather than uh, platforms, uh, employers, or the people intermediating work. Um, and, then, and then the last thing, potentially, to come back to worker tech is... Uh, to think about worker tech as a platform for other services. So if you do have a platform, again, like like Rodeo, I, I'm sure others are, are available, that is collecting data about what's happening with uh, atypical workers. 
that is a service to the self-employed, to the workers themselves, but it also could be a potential platform for other services to those individuals, providing um, access to pension payments, where again, the self-employed have, uh, you know, a weaker kind of pension provision or access to kind of collective things around sick pay or saving collective savings mechanisms. So I think there are uh, and also training opportunities that could be provided through the platform. So I think thinking not just about what can we do in terms of access to data for workers, but also once you've got this platform, what can you do on top of it that supports the self-employed to um, take whatever step they want to next? That's great. Um, over there, and let's let's take a couple of questions together. So, thank you. <clears throat> so this is a question directed towards Emma and uh, Jigo as well. Um, but Emma, you spoke about how um, we can use platforms to enable more power for for workers. And the question that I have is, what stake what stakeholders have to be involved at what level and to what degree before we can see a material change in um, the workers' conditions, and can an individual organization make a sizable change in work culture? How realistic is that? Shall I just fire away? So um, my question is around, um, so these com organizations that provide labor <laughs> are also like a way to create assets and future value. And I'm gonna ask like a kind of healthy sound snippets and what you see around uh, my question. Uh, the people who ha are like participating daily, maybe not long-term, like daily performance, providing value here and now, gig workers or short-term, they also like create the future value of the company, but generally they are the ones who don't have access. And um, so we are trying to build in this space where people who don't have, like they participate to the future value, but has not been offered at all. So it's, I'm talking about ownership, maybe not like governance ownership, but at least the financial future value of the company. Thank you. Really good question. So I'll hand over to Emma first on the first question about which stakeholders need to be involved and can one organization change the system? <laughs> oh, please. But we're not alone. Like, we're not the only one. Um, uh, yeah, we, we have a special flavor of what we're doing, but we're definitely not alone in this work. Um, the, I think there has to be a success story, just to this first question, there has to be a really big success story. And I don't think that is in the UK yet. I think there are quite a few in other countries elsewhere, but I don't think that there's one here. Um, uh, to actually start making an impact at kind of policy level to drive investment, to really bring the kind of money that this sector needs and doesn't have access to at the moment for all sorts of different reasons. So 
yes and no. There's a bit of a woolly response. Um, the in so far as people need to be organized, I mean, every level, like you can't you can't do it without working with people who are very close to the okay, this thing happened when I went to a care visit and the person who's responsible for helping the team with the rotors then changed my shift and I didn't know that that was possible to do and I have an issue with that. So I'm going to talk to the software engineer and have a real massive moan about that. And I can talk directly to the software engineer and tell him how pissed off I am about this feature. <laughs> so there's that kind of direct access thing. Um, and then there's representation. So obviously, like there's a, a co-production around kind of board level. So, so that's sort of built into our rules. But more significantly, rather than that sort of very, you know, six weekly, eight weekly kind of contact, there has to be the, the daily, the weekly. Um, uh, yeah, I can't. It's a really complicated way of doing it, but I, I can't really see any other way. <laughs> um, so, yeah, what that means in practice is members and owners of the organization taking on roles that are usually specialized. Um, so recruitment, numbers, uh, um, assessments, um, all, the, all, all of the other bits and pieces of work associated with running an organization um, and being able to package that up uh, to spread it out and to make it kind of manageable to do alongside uh, the, the care. Yeah. <laughs> um, just very briefly on the future value question. Um, as a cooperative, you can distribute your profits to share to your owners. I'm really looking forward to the day when we're able to do that. Because <laughs> um, we're still looking for investment and to be able to grow. So um, we're not making a profit. But that's kind of built into the business model to be able to participate in that future value. Um, and yeah, for other kind of governance forms like uh, company, there's a, a mutual good form of company and there's sort of others, others like with the golden share and um, CIC kind of arrangements that allow that. Uh, yeah, and I, I, I'll stop there. Anybody else wants to comment on the future value? Anna? Um, I, can, I can say a little bit about kind of um, the value of having workers kind of ha have a voice in the company, given that they're they're kind of obviously driving lots of the value. I mean, it's definitely um, something that that we've kind of um, thought about in the context of our wider work, the, the role of um, workers having a, a voice in the company boards, um, not not even just for kind of um, about kind of pay and, and kind of um, um, remuneration, but also to encourage investment in the right things that the company needs, be that kind of you know, machinery or training or whatever it might be. Um, and then I think kind of more widely, like there's definitely a, a valuable role, especially when we've kind of seen, you know, the, the, a kind of longer term decline in kind of worker voice coming through uh, things like the trade union uh, movement to kind of make sure that that's being captured uh, in, in some way, even if it's kind of in a, a slightly different way. I mean, one thing we've looked at is kind of um, less formal kind of uh, committees within organizations. I think our view is kind of it's not it's not really a substitute for kind of 
formal kind of trade union uh, voice or, or in other ways, but it's kind of, you know, it's there, there could be other mechanisms that the businesses could think about, be it kind of um, access to boards or be it elsewhere to make sure that in some way the voice of workers is, is being captured because it's kind of very much, you know, that workers on the ground will know best what the problems are. And that could, you know, not only be the problems that are affecting the workers, but also things that are going to affect businesses growth in the long term. So, um, yeah, definitely lots of interesting ideas. Just going quickly, I kind of touched on um, a lot of things I was going to mention, but uh, just to look at sort of the broader picture on, on your question. And I think we have to really change the culture um, of how businesses uh, sort of engage with workers and unions in the UK. I think a lot of that starts from the top. And I think the government has to lead by example in that respect and sort of set that best practice of how we want to see a social partnership in the UK where, you know, um, workers are seen as a really key stakeholder that they are engaged in sort of um, future value and ownership and sort of the financial future value of the company that you refer to as a particular example. But I really think that's sort of a, a wider culture change that we'd want to see from a government level that, you know, really speaks to businesses in that way and where there is a more of an open door for, for worker representatives and for unions to be involved in those conversations. And it's not just a tick box exercise. It's something that's really meaningful and valuable. Um, which is obviously a, a whole other issue that I'm, I can't solve. Um, but when we want to see that wider change in culture, I think that would make a huge difference. So it completely depends on the government. Um, but that's really important, I think. I'll just come in as well. Uh, just maybe try to address both questions at once. <clears throat> um, actually, from a business perspective, no business wants to have to compete on, in a race on you know lower wages and lower worker standards. They don't want to do that because it's a race that no one can win. And it just leads to really bad practices that they just don't want to have to do that. Every most businesses, and I'm gonna, you know, really high percentage, all they want to do is compete on customer service, high quality, high value. Um, and it's one of the reasons why we've opted for a for raising the floor on minimum worker on worker rights with this you know, minimum set of worker rights, is because the higher you can raise that floor. It means businesses can be freed up to compete on other business models and create other ways of, of engaging with their workers. They can, they can be consultative and they can be collaborative with workers. They can have new business models where they can share profits rather than be it being kind of a zero-sum game between the two. Um, and and to, to kind of echo Kay's point, that then comes back to the role of government to say, okay, no, uh, we, we can have labor market flexibility. We can have a competitive labor market, a healthy labor market, but that looks like, you know, a high floor on worker rights and standards. It means we're going to enforce the rights that we put in place, and and you know, maybe tech can help with that as well. Um, and and I think that's when you open up uh, a slightly different conversation. There are things on sharing data that the government can do today that it's just choosing not to or, or being passive about. So I think there's a lot of things that start with the kind of the mentality of from government that says, actually, the way we create a high wage economy is by um, encouraging, uh, you know, competition on value, customer service, not on low wages, low worker standards. And on that note, I'm afraid we'll have to close the discussion in the panels. Uh, so thank you, Jagar. Emma, Hannah and Kate, and I'll hand over to Emma to introduce the next section. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.